Hi, everyone. It's Paul Durham. Welcome to Telling Lies to Children. I'm coming to you from the coop at the edge of the swamp, as always. And uh, and as usual, you can find uh, this podcast along with every episode of the podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, or on my website, pauldurhambooks.com. Uh, today, I'm really happy to be welcoming to the podcast Lou Anders. Uh, Lou is the author of the Thrones and Bones series of middle grade fantasy novels. Uh, those books include Frostborn, Nightborn, and most recently coming out uh, today, as a matter of fact, that's September 6th, if you're listening uh, on the first day the podcast comes out, uh, is the final book in that series, and it is called Skyborn. Uh, Lou has uh, a, a long career in publishing, uh, wearing a variety of different hats and uh, helmets, Viking helmets. Uh, he is uh, a Hugo Award-winning editor, a Chelsea Award-winning art director. Uh, he's been a journalist and just done all kinds of uh, great and interesting stuff. So I had a I had a terrific time uh, catching up with Lou again. Um, I think you'll enjoy the podcast and uh, pick it up with myself and Lou Anders right after the intro. Thanks for joining us. Shh. Are the kids gone? Good. It's time for Telling Lies to Children with me, your host, Paul Durham. This is a first-of-its-kind podcast, one hosted by a children's author, that's me again, but intended for adults who live and breathe children's literature. That's you. Whether you're a librarian, a media specialist, a teacher, or a parent, we all work with children every day. But sometimes, it's nice to talk like adults with adults who share our love of children's books and publishing. I'll be chatting with editors at the world's biggest publishing houses, literary agents, award-winning authors, booksellers, librarians, and even young readers. Join me and my guests as we give you a candid, behind-the-scenes look at children's publishing, the business of telling lies to children. But only the best kinds of lies, of course. Welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Lou. Thanks for thanks for coming on. It is my pleasure to be here. You know, I know we've we've been corresponding for at least a couple of years now. I think uh, right around the time that uh, our first books came mm-hmm. out. Um, so it's nice to uh, nice nice to co- connect in person. Now you're uh, you're down in Alabama. You're in Alabama, right? I am. Are you born and raised? Were you born and raised in Alabama? Yeah, I was born in Mobile. Moved to Birmingham when I was one. Uh, lived here all the way through the end of high school, and then I left for 17 years. Oh, okay. And bounced all over the place. Um, yeah, you you don't even have a hint of a hint of a southern accent at all. Well, I, I, you know, it's funny because I, um, I do at times. I, uh, you I can I, put one on if you want to. No, no, I can't. I can't. Nope. I can't do the accent I was born with. I had a very yeah. thick southern accent when I was young. Um, I lived in uh, London and Chicago and Virginia and Los Angeles and San Francisco. And when I was in college in Virginia, I, 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 I begged my way into an upper level writing class that wasn't for freshmen. And they finally let me in. And then I wrote a story and they came to me and accused me of plagiarism. Oh, no kidding. Literally said, you don't speak like this. How could you have written like this? 
and uh, I was mortified. And within a month, I spoke exactly like my friend Howie Pilar's from Brooklyn. <laughs> and I had a Brooklyn accent for the next four years. And, um, and, and, and it wasn't on purpose. It, what was the what was the short story about that? Oh that my just goodness, I don't even remember. I, uh, was it was it set in the, was it set somewhere? I, I think it was an Edgar Allan Poe pastiche. Okay, I think. Okay, but uh, about because Poe was a student briefly at the University of Virginia, and they keep his dorm yeah. room. And so I think I right. wrote a story about you know finding something bricked up in the wall of his of his student housing, a lost Poe story. And, and they uh, just weren't buying it. Yeah, they said you couldn't have written this. It's not how you speak. And uh, four years later, I, I started acting, and they took me aside, and they said, we don't want to hurt your feelings, but we want you to work with a vocal coach to lose your, your New York accent. And I said, I'm from Alabama. And they said, look, we're not, we're not trying to offend you. There's nothing wrong with having a New York accent, but we want you to be able to do period work, so we want you to work with a vocal coach. And I said, I'm from Alabama. And they said, we've obviously offended you. We're not saying there's anything wrong with your accent. We just want you to be more versatile. And they never believed me that I was a Southerner. And I spent <laughs> I spent several months working with a vocal coach to lose a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there you go. You're, you have a you're, you're a versatile uh, a versatile yep. range, I suppose, if you, if you need to dwell on it. So that so you have a theater background. Is that, how is that uh, is that come in useful when you're doing your school visits and things like that? Uh it has. I'm um. I'm probably a terrible actor, but I did enough theater. I did. I studied it in London and Oxford for a year, and then I on, on partial scholarship, and then uh, I performed and, and wrote and directed in Chicago for two years in a in a black box theater in a crack neighborhood where there would be more yeah. people on stage than in the audience. Sure. But um, I think that it it I got enough of it that while I'm a bad actor, I'm a good public speaker. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. you know that's 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 it's this public speaking that's the, that's mm-hmm. the key. And, and obviously, you know, I found I was uh, before I, I did this, I was I was a lawyer for a whole bunch of years. And um, there was, I, I found the first time getting ready to go into schools was far more terrifying than actually speaking with adults or business people or anything. like that. <laughs> yes. Although it, 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 it did the first time. But, but did you get over that hurdle? Did you? Did you, did you oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very, very, very quickly. As a matter of fact, I mean, yeah. I, I absolutely adore doing school visits. I think they're, a, I think they're a blast. But I, I got lucky because the first time I went out, um, the publisher actually sent me out. They, they did. My publisher at the time was Harper Collins, and and they sent me out with a, a couple of other guys who were pretty uh, seasoned as far as school visits go. Mm. Um, a, 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 a guy named Chris Healy and a guy named Tom Watson. And uh, so I sort of learned the ropes. It was like a, it wasn't so much a panel as it was like a circus free for all. Like it would go into the schools and it was like a competition. Every, you know, each, like half the school was, had one, one, uh, one book, half the school had the other book. And it became like a competition about, you know, who could cheer the loudest and all this sort of, all this sort of business. But it was, it was really a lot of fun. And, and just seeing how they did their thing, uh, it was a great exposure uh, to, to school visits, not having to go solo. Um, but after doing, you know, after going on the road with them for a week or so, uh, I, I didn't, then I started doing the, the solo stuff and, uh, and I really like it now. I mean, it, 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 didn't take too long to, you know, to, to polish it, but once, you know, it, it, every school visit I do, 
it evolves a little bit every time I do it, but mm-hmm. I, but I really enjoy it and I'm, and I'm very comfortable with it. And it's just, it's just a lot of, it's a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah. I, um, I had worked in the adult science fiction fantasy field for 15 years and I'd done a lot of talks, but at conventions to adults and the, the youngest yeah. I'd ever spoken to were college age kids and, yeah. and yeah. random house sent me on a tour and, and very early in the tour, I was shoved out into a gymnasium with 600 children in it and given a wireless <laughs> microphone. Yeah. And I was, you know, my knees were just knocking. Uh, yeah. And five minutes in, I realized that that is my favorite audience ever. And there's, you know, the more kids you can give me and give me a wireless mic so I can run around the, inside the kids yep. and stick the mic in their faces. It's a yep. blast. If I go more than two or three weeks without a school visit, I start to get twitchy. Yeah. But, yeah it makes uh, it, it, it helps to connect with the audience. I mean, I think mm-hmm. I, I don't know about you, but I, I find it helps me get sort of retuned with what I'm doing. Very um, much. Yeah. Uh, now, when you um, when you started, do, do you have a uh, do you have a, a sort of a, a standard uh, presentation that you do? And not that not not by standard. I mean, but do you have you sort of honed your uh, your act so that you can you can so, so that it can transport from you know the gym with six hundred kids to the smaller group of you know fifty or hundred or or do you do you, do you come out you pull a new rabbit out of the hat every time you go to a school or how do, how do you do how do you it, do your visits? it tends to evolve and uh, you know I'm I'm you, you mentioned my Viking helmet I'm I have a yeah. collapsible Viking helmet early on I bought oh. a, I bought a full Viking costume which I have never had the guts to wear but um, <laughs> there's a photo of me in it but I've never worn it in public. But it, yep. but the Viking hat, just so they could ship it, was the horns pop off and the helmet's collapsible, and oh, good. Yeah. that is worth the price of the entire costume because it packs right. it packs into a suitcase or a backpack easily. Perfect. And also, yep. Vikings didn't have horns on their helmets, so you know, I I start out wearing the horn helmet and then I explain that that's not historical and I pull the horns off and. I've had kids right. gasp when the horns go, <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> when the horns come off, and so I get a bit yeah. of comedy out of that. But yeah. um, I, I I worked as an art director for ten years before I, I went full time writer, and I my relationship with artists are, is one of my favorite parts about working in in fantasy fiction, and a lot a lot of my friends are artists, and and so I, I after the book sold and and Random House blessed them. They do a lot. There's a lot of interior art in the three books, but yeah, it's it's great. It's great stuff too. It's great. Like, it looks terrific. Well, in addition to what they did, I turned around and started commissioning artists to do art as well. So we've got, mm-hmm. I think now, close to a hundred images that have been created uh-huh. for the books, and with more on the way. And and so I've got this enormous archive of really cool fantasy art that I yeah, can show awesome. while I'm talking. So, so, do, so, as far as the, the art that you commissioned on your own, has any of that found its way into the books, or is that something that you use for your presentations and online and things like that? Well, what happened was I commissioned it for uh, myself, and I, I made trading cards to give out with. Um, right. And then Random House fell in love with the trading cards, so they took over the, the manufacture of the trading cards, and they ended up commissioning more art, the trading card mm-hmm. artist, for the website, and um, and uh, so now it's a it's a, if you go on the website, Andrew Bosley is the guy who's done. The, the card art and the website art. And then Justin Girard does the cover and interiors. And then I commissioned Robert Lazzaretti to do the maps. I, um, when I was an editor, I had this uh, author named Erin Hoffman. And I was talking to her about a manuscript we were doing. And she said, Lou, I'll have a map for you in a couple of weeks. And I said, Erin, what do you mean? We'll pay for your map. And she says, no, no, I'm going to do my own map. And I said, Erin, you know, we're not that cheap. We put maps in our books. We'll pay for your map. <laughs> right. And she's like, you right. don't understand. I want to own my map. I'm going to do the mm-hmm. map. 
And I felt really guilty for years. Of all the books, all the fantasy books we did, only one author ever paid for their map, and that was Aaron. Frostborn sold. And the first thing that came to my mind is, oh, my God, I hope they don't screw up the map. Aaron is a, Aaron is a genius. I'm going to – right. <laughs> and I called uh, Rob Lazaretti, who did maps for TSR and now does a lot of the Pathfinder role-playing game maps. Sure. And I, I called him up and said, Rob, can, will you do a map for me? <laughs> and we've done seven together now. And yeah. uh, I, you know, it's, I, I, that way it's my map. It's exactly accurate. No one's going to come to me and, and say this is the map, and I'm going to say, oh, no, you got to live with it. No, this is yeah. it's perfect. Before, yeah. So uh, from feeling guilty about Aaron, I think Aaron had it going on. So you, so you take, I mean, you take a, it sounds like you take a very hands-on approach to the to the, to the art and the, and um, to a certain extent to to your promotional activities with the with the trading cards and things like that. Um, which I think is really cool. It's important uh, because you know in this in this business, um, you know, publishers will, will you know they have as far as they'll go for you, and then you really have to pick up the ball and run with it yourself. Uh, and, and the more you do it, it seems to be you know I mean, if, as authors, you know, we're, we're really doing a service to ourselves. And and you know, just you know, talking with you and getting to know you a little bit online and things like that. You know, I can tell you have a real passion for the like a lot of us on the fantasy side. You know the art and the maps and the and the you know our our little worlds that we create are very much our own and and they're complete figments of our imagination. So we have a certain ownership uh, to them. Um, that it's nice to you know it's nice when it's realized it's it's realized in the way that we that, you know that we envision. Well, I have to you know I have to back up and say Kenneth Crossland's the designer on the books and he's in charge right. of that and he does a magnificent job and I I don't interfere, but um. When they when they first came to me with the choice of Justin Gerard for book one, mm-hmm. I know yeah. Justin and we have worked together professionally, and so they knew that and they said, "Look, you're an art director. We have an art director. You're not allowed to talk to Justin for the duration of, <laughs> of, of this." And, um, and I almost I, I was still working at the time, and I almost hired him for a job just to like really dial the tension to eleven, you know. And uh, <laughs> we can talk, but not about my book. And, right. And, right. But again, when I was an art director, I had two authors, Clay and Susan Griffin, who who do a vampire steampunk, a historical pulp fiction alternate world romance. And um, has that enough hyphens? That's a mashup, yeah, there isn't you go. it? And yeah. uh, I always my authors, you know, you, you, your expertise is writing, not art. So you do not get to tell the artist what to do. You don't want them to come in and tell you to rewrite your last chapter. You don't get to tell them to repaint their painting. But what you can do is you can front load them with as much information going in. So you give right. me a document and I'll give it to them. And most people give me a paragraph or they say, you know, I imagine this woman looks like Katie Sackoff or something. And yep. uh, they gave me a PDF that was like 20 pages long where they had taken celebrities and then they had taken clothing and accoutrements and weapons and sunglasses and made basically paper doll cutouts going, it's, oh, wow. it's this actress wearing this sarong, carrying this scimitar, wearing this <laughs> scarf, <laughs> standing against this backdrop. You know, and uh, I, Chris McGrath was the artist. And I called him up and said, Chris, I'm going to send you something because I promised I would. But this is not your brief. This is not from me. This is me. Right. You know, this is me keeping my word. Look yep. at it. Throw it out if you don't want it. Don't be offended by it. You know, take what you want. Ignore the rest. He loved it. And so, uh, again, when they told me, you can't talk to Justin, I fell back on Clay and Susan Griffin. 
I made a 20-page document. I'm like, it's this, this boy. I'm using this actor as a model, this kind of sword. Notice the hilt is an oval guard. Notice the fuller. Notice the length of the sword, this kind of clothing. Right, right. And I sent it to them, and uh, I didn't know how they'd take it. They gave it to Justin. They loved it. When it came time for book two, they're like, now, have you made your PDF yet? Yep. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I mean, you have to, you know, there's a certain amount of, uh, as an author, I mean, if you're, if, I think if you're smart and you're savvy, like as you obviously are, you realize that, you know, there's a certain amount of management you have to do on the editor with the editorial side so that, uh, so, so that, you know, you can, you can get your point across or you can convey sort of your vision uh, in a way that doesn't seem overbearing. Um, but you're still getting, you know, you're, st- you're, you're still getting your vision across in a way that is helpful to them and, and doesn't s- just seem like the meddling author who wants to micromanage everything. Um, and and th- th- there's a skill to that. And certainly, certainly it sounds like from your, you know, from your years on the other side uh, that, that, that came in, that came in useful for you. Um, so you were, I mean, you were, you were on the, uh, on the sort of the adult sci-fi side for a, a long time, right? Mm-hmm. And then you were involved in, in editing and, and very, very, very much uh, acclaimed, right? Now you've won, have you, you've, I know you've been nominated for multiple Hugo Awards. Have you, have you won multiple? Hugo I won, Awards? I won nominated seven times for the Hugo and wow. nominated seven times for the Chesley for art director. One yeah. each, but once, one, one Hugo and one Chesley. Right. Well, that's terrific, though. I mean, that's that's uh, that, that, that's really really great. Um, how did you find? I mean, how did you find your way to uh, the children's side? It, it, did it? Uh, you know, did you did you have kids and you're and you and you started to uh, start you know started to, to to think about you know stories for them or did you? It was something that you always uh, books you you know have you always had Frostborn in you and it was just waiting for the right time to come out or how did how did that come about? You know, it was it was a couple things coming together. I um. In 2010, I edited a for a different publisher for Simon Schuster. Uh, Jonathan Strawn and I co-edited a sword and sorcery anthology. It was a mix of uh, famous old guys and, and new sword and sorcery writers, and um, and I got inspired and I wrote a horrible, horrible, horrible short story that starred an adult Theana. Theana being my main character, who's half yeah. who's half frost giant, and I. Um, right. And it was just horrible, and it got rejected by every market that would even look at heroic fantasy, and uh, and rightfully rejected. So I put that aside, and it got me interested in writing again. And I wrote a number of manuscripts that did not sell. And uh, at the same time, um, I, I, Joe Monte was my agent at first, and he uh he was very very skeptical of my i tried to write young adult to begin with i didn't want to write adult because i wanted to separate my lou the editor who works in adult fiction from lou the writer sure. and yeah. so i chose ya and joe was you know some people are like oh it must have been easy for you coming from editing already and actually a lot harder people in the adult field writing for children because they always made the same mistakes um mm. Mainly letting, you know, they don't let the children drive the bus. They always have adults step in and save the day, and they make the characters just passengers in their own story. And so right. he put me through basically a year-long apprenticeship where he made me write without, without promising to take me on to see if I can do it. But um, I do have kids, and a lot of what we published was sort of post-George R. R. Martin. Uh, Game of Thrones style gritty fantasy that they won't be allowed to read for decades. Right, right. <laughs> or ever. And uh, so I, I wanted something that that they could read 
and I wanted something for boys and girls because I've got one of each. And yeah. uh, and I wanted – it's always been a pet peeve of mine that um, a lot of times I think – or at least historically, I don't think this is the case anymore. A lot of times in children's fiction, the boys get to be the ones who get to be stupid and swing the sword around. And sure. the girls have to be clever or – or intelligent or cautious or magical. And uh, with apologies to Hermione, who is all of those things. I, I wanted the girl character to be the, the, able to be the brash and bold and stupid one, while the boy was the cautious, clever one, saying maybe we don't have to kick the door down just quite yet. And um, it, it, it kind of came together where I was like, I want to write a story about a strong female. I, I really love fantasy fiction, the young adult stuff I'm doing is not, is, is, you know, I'm writing what I think will sell or what I think I can write and not what I want to write. And and realizing this, this short story I had lying around, it wasn't working. And realizing, this, you know, a, a woman who's half giant, the story is about, is, is not about the adult. The story is about what is it like growing up as a half giant. Right. And that all clicked. And that's when I started writing Frostborn. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, it's 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 terrific. I mean, I really uh, I really enjoyed Frostborn, and um, it's it. And I, I know someone's I think someone's asked you this before. Have Have you ever I mean Have you ever been to uh, you know Norway or Denmark or uh, that part of the world, um, or or is it really you know Did you sort of create that sort of because obviously that that it, it's not set there, but that's the inspiration for. Very, I, I think that that sort of that culture and mythology is a bit of an inspiration for uh the characters and the things and is that is that fair to say yo very very yeah. very much inspiration. yeah yeah so was that was that research based i mean had you did you travel there or how did you how, how did you how did you make that sort of that culture so rich and and sort of vibrant on the page you know i had never been to norway before i started writing i'd been to europe many times i've been to china and i've been um to japan but i'd never been to scandinavia and after the book sold while I was in the se- writing the second draft, I got to take a research trip, and I went to Norway for nine days, and it was incredible. And it, it um, this was also when I was working with Lazaretti on the maps, and so I was going out and hiking and climbing around the fjords and the mountaintops, and then sending him the photos as reference photos in the evening, and uh, and he would do a version of the map and send it back, and then I would go out the next day and take some more photos, and it was just a blast. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was walking wonderful. the countryside, but I also I came back from that and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to do a descriptive pass because my you know I, I think I, I my description is just not gonna capture the the you just you know everyone says you have to see the fjords and you won't believe them until you see them and photos really don't do it justice and I thought I'm gonna have to do a complete pass on the book just to change the way I describe things and I got back to my story and I didn't. The, I didn't have to change anything. The only thing I added was there's a lot of red berries on the mountainside. And I, yeah. I, the only change was I put the red berries in, and my editor proceeded to cut the red berries right back out. <laughs> and so had no, I know your, I know your yes, editor. You I can't do. believe she would do such a no, thing. No, not at all. What do we need these red berries for? Are they, are they right. really serving the story? Um, <laughs> and uh, so a whole trip to Norway, no, not, not necessary. But what I found out was is that at, the, at this time, I had, was actually already 150 hours into playing the video game Skyrim. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so they had gone to Norway and spent millions of dollars reconstructing Norway in a video game. And I had played Skyrim for a, for, for a year. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
And so <laughs> I had internalized the Norwegian landscape without knowing I had internalized it. So my description matched what I saw. So it was more confirmation than, than, than revelation when I was there. Uh, for the second book, we, we, the second book, what the second book was going to be about changed. And I had about three months to come up with a new second book. And it's set in a country, it's set in a, in a city inspired very much by Constantinople during the fall and uh, to the Ottoman Empire. And that's my, that's my, that's that's my point. And yeah. so uh, that I, I, I had to teach myself everything there was to know about the fall of Constantinople in a very rapid, rapid period. <laughs> and I read a lot of texts and I watched some very dry documentaries. And, um, but I also Googled Constantinople video game. <laughs> And found Did you find one? Assassin's yep. Creed Revelation. It takes place in Istanbul about 50 years after the fall. And yep. I, I've never played any of the Assassin's Creed games before. I haven't played them since, but I played that entire game from start to finish so I could feel like I was walking around the streets of Istanbul. And it works. I'm a huge believer in, in, in video gaming to internalize landscape if you can't afford to go. It's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. I find it interesting. I think I, I think I, I think I have read um, either on your blog or somewhere your your notes on uh, Skyrim before. Um, yes, that's a game I've played, um, and I, I've played I've played Assassin's Creed before, um, and it really it, the the landscapes and the textures are so rich in video games now that you know from an inspirational standpoint as far as as far as getting that sort of stuff i mean it's really great i, fi- I find you know video games get a bad rap sometimes for you know i guess sometimes for good reasons sometimes for, for bad for not so good reasons but uh, as an author i mean it's a it's a, it's a really they're really rich creative environments that if you're you're seeking inspiration um it's just as valid as watching a movie i think or or reading a book um certainly as far as getting the visual elements i think you know i i i've i've been not you know not exactly um the same way you have but same thing i mean i've some some of the things i've seen in video games including skyrim and some of the assassin's creed stuff has just been really you know it's been really fun to sort of help spark the imagination and and and, and help with descriptions and things like that so you know i think it's interesting i'm sorry go ahead Go, I was just going to say, it's interesting to hear another author say that. I, I, I'm actually a, a big believer that, that authors should not fast travel. They should play – fantasy authors should all play Skyrim, and they should not – because I think, too, uh, there's a real danger, especially when if you're writing quest fantasy, to just do a connect the dots. We go from A to B to C, and, you know – there, my, 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 my biggest pet peeves are movies and books where there's no sense of a wider world to the right or left of the path the hero takes. So, right. you know, everything is just a, a, a line of, of events toward the conclusion, and there's no sense of anything taking place around that or having any life. Like Wizard of Oz, you know, if you step off the old brick road, there's really nothing there. Right. And, yeah. um, and, and we forget sometimes just how dangerous it was to leave civilization or how hard it was to travel. You know, uh, it, 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 uh, in this age of planes, trains, and automobiles, we don't realize that, like, I'm driving my daughter to school. If I had to ride her to school, school would be over by the time we got there. Right, and uh, right. we'd just spend the night and ride back. And, and yep. I remember once in Skyrim, uh, doggedly wanting to ride my horse over a mountain because I was too stubborn to, to take the time to ride around the mountain and, you know, <laughs> falling and dying like 10 times in a row and wasting half an hour before I gave up and rode around the mountain. Sure. And, and that sense of the difficulty of travel and the danger of leaving and the the happenstance and, and random occurrences that can complicate a narrative. 
I think are important just to, 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 to guard against the tendency to just make everything smooth and easy and a straight shot from, from goal to destination. Yeah, it's, it's it's it really is. It, it's I mean, other than the fact that they're just they're just fun. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, this is all just like, yeah. This is all yeah, just an yeah. elaborate justification for a bad right. habit. Is what this is. But that's but that's okay. You know, yeah. we you know we we uh, you know we find ways to procrastinate yeah. and and then and then justify why it was useful to procrastinate. But I really believe I mean I really believe that that is uh, you know that is that is true. Um, so so it is Sky Skyborn the third book in your your trilogy. Is that is that that's coming out soon or is that so, out yet? It comes out September sixth. Okay, so that must be in the can. It must be. It must be it's, it's all. It's all done yep. and polished and edited at this point, right? So, um, congratulations on that. How did that? How did how how did that feel to sort of? Because it is a it is a planned trilogy, right? So, is, does that wrap up sort of the story arc for you, or it, do you have more to come? It, well, it 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 wraps up the story arc. It's the way this yep. is. It it um it. I built the world. I spent three months world building before I started plotting, and yep. so the world is big enough. I could tell stories in the world for the rest of my life. And, sure. uh, yeah. you know, I have ideas for stories taking place on the Asian continent in the world and I'm dying to get to the Egyptian country. And, but, uh, but this, you know, I wrote Frostborn to be both standalone and the start of something. So you could read Frostborn and get a, get a, a good satisfying conclusion. But at the right. same time, books one, two, and three are one arc and everything yep. that, that starts in one ends in three. And, yep. uh, it, it was, um, it's the most epic of the three. It has the largest cast of characters. There's a huge battle in the end. I kind of mm-hmm. duck out of Dragon. I shouldn't spoil too much, but um, there's a big monster. No, no, one's, no one's listening. Don't worry. <laughs> well, I, I, in book one and book two, there, there are big monsters that don't quite get involved in big battles. And so by the right, time book right. three came along, I said, okay, we're going to have to have a big monster battle at the end of book three. Yep. And uh, Chekhov's it, monster. So it, exactly. Chekhov's monster right. has to has to breathe fire now and um it it uh i it was a hard book to write it uh i i have this false memory that the second book just flew from my pen and i giggled the whole time and my wife will tell me no that's not true you actually were in quite a foul mood sometimes and it was you know you you complained constantly and all that but i remember it it's just this this it's like women don't actually remember the pain of childbirth or they would never have right. a second child and uh, there's actually a physiological thing that happens that blanks a lot of their memory from that period. So they, they forget what a, what a, a colossally bad idea it is to reproduce. <laughs> and um, I, I apparently have this rose-colored S's view of Nightborn as just this amazing thing that just sprang from my brain like Athena from Zeus without any problem at all and, 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 no, and not even the headache. And, 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 and Skyborn is a nightmare to write. Um, when I think back on my favorite scenes or some of my favorite bits and characters, a, a lot of a surprising number of them all come from book three. Um, so it's it's weird. I, and, and, it's, and some of my beta readers all like book three the best, which was when I learned that like the experience of writing something and then what is written are two different things. And sometimes you have to divorce yourself from your attitude about the process as separate from your attitude about the product. It, 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 it's interesting. So, so it sounds like in your mind, the uh, it, the second book, at least the process, real or imagined, was your favorite one to write. Yes. Was that? Yeah. Um, it's funny. I I hated writing my second book. <laughs> I mean, I I adored the first one, but you know, the first the first one first books, and I don't know what you're. I'm assuming that you actually wrote the wrote all of Frostbone before you sold it. 
Yes. Um, maybe not. Yeah. But so, so you know, that, you're writing on spec and effect. And, uh, you know, with me, you know, I wrote my first book for my kids and it was very much a, you know, sort of this organic process. And there were it, it, there was no intention of ever getting it published or anything else. I mean, it was really just sort of a, a, a personal thing I was doing for for myself and my kids. So that, so I always I think I'll always have a soft spot for that first book. Um, the second book, what my memories of the second book were that was that it's, it was absolutely brutal <laughs> and it was a grind and it was an awful process. And I basically wound up entirely rewriting the, the second book during edits. And, um, by the time it was done, I was so sick of this Isle of Pest and having, having I couldn't think of one more way to describe a, a, a beach or a rock or a wave. I was like, I'm never setting a book on an Island again. It was just a, just a war to get through. And then, by comparison, the third my, my third book just felt like a breeze. Um, I think, like I sort of felt like I had set the table at that point. It was just time for everybody to eat, and I and I and it seemed for me the third book seemed easier. Again, much like looking back on it, there were frustrations and aggravations, and maybe it wasn't nearly as easy as I, I thought it was. But for me, the second one was the real bear that for uh, for my process anyway. That's the one I'll always remember as being the, the tough. Now the one. first one takes place entirely in village drowning. The second one on the island. I don't know where does the third one take place. The, the third, the third one um, takes place uh, in the forest uh, beyond the shale. Okay. So, so it, it it opens up in the forest, and then ultimately it concludes back in drowning mm. again. So, um, so drowning sort of has uh, drowning, and everybody in it kind of has its time of reckoning, and uh, and and so it sort of comes back around full circle, um, which I which was important to me. It was it was interesting. I don't know about when you wrote when you were writing your series. Um, I, I, did you you pitch it as a series? Well, truthfully, when I when it, when we first presented it, we I wrote it so that you could follow either character, Karn or Theana, into a sequel. Yeah. And I didn't right. imagine that they would meet up. And you know, my okay. wife said, "No, no, no, they have to meet again." And my agent said, "No, yeah. they have to meet again." Then we sold it. Then my editor said, "They have to meet again." <laughs> so, right. Right. <laughs> so it's, uh, I didn't know which direction we were going. I thought I was going to stay with one or the other character, or maybe do one solo book about each, which is you know, is naive and unworkable. Um, and, uh, and so it was, it was pitched as a, as a series, but not one that I knew what was going to happen in. Right. Uh, I see. Yep. Yep. It's, you know, so with mine, so I wrote the first much, much like Frostborn with the way you were describing Frostborn. I, you know, I wrote, I wrote the Luck Uglies as a book that, um, I thought I could stand alone. Like I said, I never necessarily thought it would ever get sold. So I wasn't, I didn't have these, you know, grand illusions of, of having a series. Uh, but it, but I was in it, I was writing a world that I knew uh, I could grow in and have a, um, you know, have other stories and have a continuing, you know, storyline and arc and things like that. And then my, you know, my agent at the time said, well, we should really, let's, you know, let's pitch this as a series. So I sat down before we went out to publishers and I actually kind of did an outline of five books. Mm -hmm. Um, and what was what was interesting is I always had a very clear vision for how the how that series was series was going to end, and in fact, even before we sold the first book, I was just tinkering tinkering around, and I basically wrote the conclusion, the final you know say chapter or two of the whole series before you know I even sold the first book or wrote the second book or anything like that, and I, I think. Go, having gone through the process now, probably one of the most satisfying things for me is that I was able to stay true to that original vision. And basically, the, despite you know external pressures, despite you know what you the conventional norms of how series are supposed to go or what characters are supposed to do, I was able to really stay true to what my vision was for for Rye, the main character, 
And, um, and that's, what I think, probably one of the things I'm most proud of is that it ended exactly the way I always envisioned it ending. Um, so in that regard, I think I feel I feel pretty fortunate that, you know, I never I didn't know how I was going to get there. I knew where the series was going to begin and where it was going to end. I, I, I just didn't necessarily know how, how I was going to get from point A to point B. But that's kind of the fun in the writing anyway is, is you know, finding your way. So were there any problems in collapsing five and three? Did you did you just did stuff get condensed into the same book or did you lose material? Yeah, you know, it's inter- yeah, I think that's I think that's part of why the second book was so challenging. And I, I basically had to collapse the concepts of books two, three and four in my original outline. So I combined two elements that had no business ever being together. And that was the idea of these fork tongue charmers and the Isle of Pest, which is the, the island where um, Rai's mother is from. Mm. Um, th- th- those, two th- those two things were supposed to exist in entirely different books. So I, I had this challenge of trying to figure out how the heck do I get everybody from all my characters from Village Drowning to this island, and then I have to have the Fork Tongue Charmers there. And I think that's part of what was, was so difficult about it. It was really trying to, trying to, to blend different elements that I never foresaw going together mm-hmm. into, into one. So that was that was the technical juggling of it that made it uh, you know made it a little bit tricky, but it's all fun. I mean, you, we you, we talk about challenges of being a writer. I mean, the fact is, it's we're basically in a big sandbox. We get to play in, and and <laughs> it's not a it's the, the, the stress the stress of writing coming up with stories um, does not nearly compare to what I used to do. Although yeah, it sounds like what you used to do was pretty fun too. You'd think that. Yeah. <laughs> always. <laughs> um, tell me. So, so you sent me a, you sent me a link yesterday to it looks. You know, it look, is that a is that a standalone short story or what's? Tell me a little bit about that. It is. I, I'm very lucky. I got the featured story in the May 2006 issue, 2016 issue of Boys Life, and uh, that's awesome. I I um I was a Cub Scout. I was never a Boy Scout, so I wasn't that familiar. I you know yeah. I read Boys Life when I was very very young. But yeah. my publicist called me out and said we had the opportunity to write a story for Boy's Life, and would I do it? And I said, sure. Um, yeah. I don't write short stories. I've only written a couple right. in my life, and uh, and they weren't very good. And and I thought, okay, I'll write a short story for this. And then uh, she came back and said, okay, what? Well, the trick is, it's you know, good news. It could only be one thousand five hundred words long. Um, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, put the handcuffs on. Exactly. That's that's, that's not that's that's terrifying. And uh, right. And, and so I don't write short stories, and I've got to write a super economical one that nonetheless satisfies. And then she says, I'll call you on uh, Thursday with the details. And so Thursday she calls me, and late Thursday, and says that because the details are they need it by Wednesday. Uh, so let us know what you're going to write about on Friday, and we'll get it approved. <laughs> and, and, and then um, my editor comes on and says that she's going to be out of the office from Tuesday on and, and very much wants to see it before it goes off to Boy's Life. So can I have it done by Sunday afternoon? So I, I went to that, left my family for two days and lived at Starbucks and came up with a short story. And uh, it's, it's actually uh, – it's about Karn's father when he was 12. So it's called Cory and the Troll, and it's about uh, – his father's a 12-year-old having an encounter with a troll. Uh, I'm very proud of it, but it, you know, they came back and said they had to cut another 250 words out. And oh. uh, this is a boy's life came back for space reasons. And yeah. can you imagine? You've got it's only 1,500 words to begin with, and we had to find right. a way to remove yeah. 250 words without changing anything. And yeah, uh, cool. <laughs> it, um, it was yeah. it was it was you know, but. 
it was it was a incredibly intense time. Although I kind of wish someone would do that to me right now and be like, the book you're working on right now has to be done in three days or or, or else we burn your, you know. Right. I, I could use some of that motivation right. now. Um, yeah, that, that kind of, that kind of helps yeah. during sometimes with with. Yeah. <laughs> well, but but how great is this? Nice, you, you got for a short story, you got to actually explore you know explore your world yep. a little bit more. That's really that's really cool. And it turns out, Boy's and, Life is read by about six million people, so it's uh not it's, yeah it's not yeah, too shabby. Not too shabby at all. Another congratulations on that. So that's terrific. And uh, and now, are you working on a, are you working on a new a new book or a new series or uh, anything you can both? talk about? Or? I can't say much about it except that okay, uh, you're partially to blame. Which okay, is that all right. Ever since Luck Uglies, I have really wanted to write something that takes place entirely in one city and the woods around that city. And it has yeah. no other thing in common with Luck Uglies except it takes place in one city and the woods around that city. And I, you know, my first series, they travel 2,000 miles across the three books. They travel a couple, probably 100 miles in the first book, and they travel, uh, they travel nearly 2,000 miles in the second book, and then they're traveling across a continent that's hundreds of miles wide in the third book. And, uh, and I am, I've been wanting for several years now to, to write, ever since Luck Always came out, to write something where it was just one environment and I stayed there and I had a cast of characters who were all natives to that area and we just had the people interact and got a lot of physical comedy and, and, and a relationship comedy from one spot. And boy, is that difficult. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm finding this to be really, really, really challenging. I want to be able to just hop on a wyvern and fly a couple hundred miles and I can't. To and, fly somewhere yep, new. And just, you know, I'm like, well, I haven't already been there. How am I going to do? This? How am I going to go there twice and make it interesting? And and uh, it's 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 a real challenge. And I I would think that that having a smaller set of things to work with would you know it's like Lego bricks or something. I don't know. I I thought it would be easier to build something simple. And instead, I find it being like, oh, I'm still trying to build the same skyscraper, but I've only got ten bricks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I. I, I <laughs> I know what you mean, but I like. I, see, I like the. I kind of like you know any you know like any city or village or neighborhood. Um, you know, I, I sort of I like the you know there's so many corners and shadows of you know mm-hmm. depending on whatever town you live in that you never that you never you know you never investigate you never know what's going on there and and I've I sort of really like the there was something appealing to me about a story set in a you know set in a village or set in a city um where you really get to know the the city or and it it becomes a place it becomes part of it becomes a character unto itself um so that sounds cool i'm looking forward to when you can when you can talk more about it. i'm looking forward to to hear what you what you come up with that's uh that's, that's cool stuff. so do i <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I would love to know what i came up with <laughs> Are, are you um, so? Are what are you? Uh, what do you? What are you reading these days? You read? Uh, you don't have to name anything specific if you don't oh, want I'm to. But are, are you reading middle grade or what do you? You read YA or uh, read adult I've stuff? Been, what do you read? You know, because I, my background being adult, I've, I've read hundreds of yeah. adult novels or thousands. But I have I've been underread yeah. in middle grade. So for for the so ever since I sold Frostborn, I've been reading middle grade voraciously. I'm an extremely slow reader, so voraciously for me is still at a very slow pace. Um, yep. my son and I just completed the Harry Potter series. Uh, we, we, oh, we, we started okay. it when he was young, but it, it, you know, that series ramps up fast and it started, it sort of became too much for him. And so we, we read the Hobbit in anticipation of, of that movie or, or more truthfully that Lego yep. set. And, uh, right. <laughs> and then he wanted to read Lord of the Rings and it took us a year to read Lord of the Rings. 
And then he said, let's read the Silmarillion. And I said, you really don't mean that. And he said, no, no, let's do it. Let's do it. And we got halfway through the Silmarillion, bless him, when he finally said, you know what, this is too much. Let's go back to Harry Potter. So we went back to Harry Potter and and we finished it recently. But he is now past the age at which Harry Potter would be challenging for him. But we we loved it both. But I mean, so, you know, we got we had a two year Tolkien break in the middle of Harry Potter uh, between Harry (laughs) Potter two and three. So, um, so we have been looking for something now that we like as much as JK Rowling and, and nothing has, you know, there's, there's her and there's everyone else. Um, and, and there's such a gap between her, her proficiency in writing and imagination and everyone else. And I lump myself in that everyone else. And it just, you know, she's magnificent, deservedly so. And the first thing I found that I think is exciting us as much as J.K. Rowling is we just finished Terry Pratchett's The We Free Men. Oh, okay. And have you yeah. read? You, you get a lot to a lot to yeah. So you, that's that's yeah. a great that's a that's a great with with a lot of you have a lot of territory to mine yep. there too. If you if you well, I'd read the adult yeah. Pratchett, and I'm. Not that big. I mean, it's good. I appreciate it, but it's not that good on parody. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that big on parody. And he mm-hmm. dials the parody back for the Tiffany Aching books, and they feel more like a real place and less less like a a a a uh, 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 what's another word for parody? A a a um, pastiche of someone else's place. And uh, right. and so I think that that they may be. I don't know that I that we would get the same response out of the other Pratchett books, although we're going to read them. But we, we just started Hatful of Sky, and I'm loving those. And then after a huge hiatus from adult fiction, I, I decided I ought to read um, some of the really popular adult epic fantasy tomes that I've been avoiding because they're huge and I'm a slow reader. Mm-hmm. So I'm a third of the way into Brandon Sanderson's The Way of Kings uh, and okay. enjoying yep. that like quite a bit. The world building in that is pretty amazing. Now, do you do you see yourself sticking in the fantasy genre for uh, the near future? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, as far as writing goes, as far as writing goes. Oh yeah, I think so. I um, yeah. I think that's yeah. my niche. Yeah, yeah. That's well, it's true. Well, I mean, you 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 do great stuff, Lou. And um, like I said, I really I really enjoy I really enjoyed your books that I've read, and I'm looking forward to the the stuff that you come out with uh, that you come out with next. I'm sure there'll be many more, many more to come. And uh, and I like I said I could you're, you you mean you got we got a ton of stuff to talk about I could keep you here all day but I won't do that to you I won't <laughs> I won't put you I won't put you through that um, but I just want to thank you again for uh, for for coming on and um, and it's it's been really fun chatting I'm sure we'll we should do it again sometime and I'm sure we'll keep in touch because you know now that we're at the same we're siblings at the same house well now, please so. do it I hope we I hope we have an occasion sometime to one each other and up up on on the road on tour. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. If you're ever in, if you're ever in New Hampshire and you want to come hang out in a chicken coop, you let me know. I got I know a good one. We can come. We 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 can hang a out. A chicken in. coop. Yeah, well, it's not. A, it's a former chicken coop. I write it. I write in what used to be a chicken coop. Um, it was a. It was a. It was a nice chicken coop. It was sort of like the. It was sort of like the Ritz Carlton of chicken coops. It was like more like an eight by ten foot shed. <laughs> <laughs> um, and but it had like it was all full of nesting boxes and there was like a chicken run and wow. and when we moved to this house there, there there were actual chickens going in and out of this thing, 
But I still had a daughter in diapers at the time, and I was like, look, you know, we're still changing diapers. I can't be cleaning up after chickens. The, the chickens, one of the, one of the conditions on the sale was the chickens have to go. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, they, so the chickens got relocated to a nice home, from what I understand. And, uh, and we moved in, and we had this sort of, like, you know, just vacant old chicken shed. And uh, and I was writing, you know, I have a, I had a little home office, but inevitably when I was in the middle of something or trying to have a call, you know, the kids would be yelling up and down the hallway and screaming and it'd be some sort of chaos. And I always sort of had this romanticized notion of having like a little shack or a cabin or something somewhere where I could write like in the woods. And this chicken coop was legitimately on the edge of a swamp. Um, the realtor called the realtor called it a beaver pond, which if a realtor ever tells you that, you know that you're basically buying a house next to a swamp. Um, so, so, so there's at the edge of our property down by the woods, by the, by the swamp is, uh, was the shed. And, and I had my contractor come in and he, you know, he cleaned it all up and insulated it. We put heat and electricity out there. And, and now, I mean, if you ever, I, you know, I tell people I write an old chicken coop and I show them pictures. They're like, you gotta be kidding me. It does not look like a chicken coop. I mean, it's pretty nice inside. Um, but it's remote and it's, you know, I have a nice commute across the yard into the woods uh, but it's quiet back there, and especially during the winter up here when you get you know you get a couple of feet of snow on the ground, and it's just it's really it's really a great place to sit and, and be creative. So, um, but yeah, it, it really is an abandoned uh, abandoned. Is chicken. it haunted by the ghosts of headless chickens? No, I don't think so. I, although every you know every now every now and then when I get like writer's block or something, I start to wonder if there's something you know some, there's something going on <laughs> out there. So maybe I need to maybe I need to put an offering or something out for the, yeah. for the chickens to help with the help with the writing, but. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that's where I do my that's where I do my write. You do writing in any? Do you, do you write in any sort of specific place at home, or do you have a? I am right now. I'm writing uh, at a high kitchen table, and just in a you know. There you go. I'm, I'm I, I I have an office space downstairs, but I decided I don't like being downstairs, so I'm I'm yep. just writing in the middle of the kitchen. And uh, yeah. yeah, you got to mix yep. it up sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. Well, happy writing, Lou, and it was a pleasure chatting with you. And like I said, hopefully we'll do it again next time, you know, when uh, in the future we should do this again. I would love to. Thank you so much, Paul. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, Telling Lies to Children was brought to you by, well, nobody. Just me and my guests. One of the nice things about being completely unknown in the vast world of podcasting is that you don't have to listen to me read 10 minutes worth of ads at the beginning and end of every episode. But I hope you'll check out my website, pauldurhambooks.com. There you can find out more about the Luck Ugly series, you can book a school visit, you can shop the newly opened Dead Fish Inn gift shop, or just reach out and say hello. I'd love to hear from you. You can also find links to all of my guests' websites and social media there. So until next time, I wish you happy reading, ugly luck, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon.
I bet that woke you up. See you next time.